Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant, as we have taken to calling it. So glad that you're here. I'm happy to report this is a live episode. If you, dear listeners, hear a voice that doesn't sound like one of the three of our voices, it isn't. It's a listener to the show. If you hear a voice that sounds like your own, surprise, we were recording. <laughs> Thank you for being here. And I'm, I am pleased to say that we have made it to the end. Woo! Finally! I didn't think it would happen. And indeed, Tolstoy has more novels inside of him that will come out eventually. But for the moment, he is done. <laughs> that sounds like regurgitating. It's, it's gross. Well, for there's a, a lot yeah. of regurgitating. I mean, the man chews the cud more than a cow. He it's does. insanity. And he can't help himself but to go back to the same well again in the appendix. But I do think that this appendix that we read sort of is our first topic today is a succinct summary of his aims yeah. in in writing this novel. What do you guys think of this? Yeah, I um, actually underlined a line and I was wondering what you guys thought. Because he kind of gives us a hermeneutic of sorts with which to read his book. I may need a definition of the word hermeneutic. A lens or a theory by which to interpret his meaning. Gotcha. Thank you. He says, I would like readers not to see or seek in my book what I did not want or was not able to express and to pay attention to precisely what I wanted to express. So far, so good. Center for Lit is tracking with you, Tolstoy. We are, we've got your back. He says, but on which, given the conditions of its production, I did not consider it the thing that I intended to express. I did not consider it appropriate to dwell. So it seems like he's saying, I want you to read my book, trying to understand what I was trying to communicate to you, but... Given the conditions of its production, which is an extremely vague sentence, I did not consider it appropriate to dwell on that which I wanted to express. I call, I call bull doo doo. <laughs> I was going to say, you can't say that on the air. I think he did. I think he did plenty of dwelling. Well, that, that was my question. Does he feel so? Well, I have so many questions Me in too. relation to that, actually, because if that's true, then the thing that he dwelled upon, dwelt, dwelled? Dwelt upon, the thing he dwelled on. Dwelt. That thing is the historical theory that he keeps coming back to, right? And yeah, Alicia, my thoughts too. What did he want to dwell more did on? Did he want to dwell more? Well, maybe. I'm sure he maybe did. he was like, this was paltry treatment of historical philosophy, and we're like, we don't agree with you. Or maybe he's saying, I really wanted to talk to you about the characters, and I didn't see this as an appropriate avenue to do that, so I didn't. That's what I was kind of leaning towards. I want, like, in my sympathetic heart, I want to believe that what he's saying is what I really wanted to tell you about was about all of these interpersonal relationships and their bearing on existential ideas. But I didn't have time to talk about that. My fiction is going to have to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. 
But then he goes on to talk about his philosophy of history in the appendix. Well, (laughs) he does, except the very first place that he goes after that statement that you read, Emily, is to talk about the format that he chose for his work of art. And he's very quick to say that it's not a novel. That's his first thought. So that seems to tie in with our second reading of your statement. This isn't a novel. It wasn't the right place for delving deeply into the relationships. And it's not an epic poem. That's another fictional format, right? And lastly, it's not a historical chronicle. Yeah, but I i mean, it, your reading of that is very charitable and I applaud it. But I hear what I hear him saying is a very elitist Russian novelist thing to say, which is to say in Russia, <laughs> the art form exceeds all previous art forms. <laughs> How right? has your I Russian mean, accent only just now come out? <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, I think he's saying, look, the history of Russian literature since Pushkin is that we don't adhere to Western standards or we're biting off more than the average uh, paltry Western novelist. But I think there's truth to that, right? Well, it's that not, he's not it's wrong, a... but we've been, we've been ribbing him about it this entire time. I mean, there are reasons that the novel is one of the most legendary literary forms. It's because it's really, really good at a very specific thing. And we've been, we've been giving him crap for not being, for not paying enough attention to that thing this whole time. I don't know. I guess there's just a, there's a question in my mind about whether the blending of all of those forms as it happens here in War and Peace helps or hurts the point he's trying to make and why he felt the need to go defend it afterwards in print. It is true, though, that the form, literary forms, develop over time to meet needs of new eras, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. the sonnet was appropriate for, I mean, we still use the sonnet, but like, like, but it's not as certain in, point, it's not as in vogue as it once right. was. Right. Like yeah. now there's blank first. Now there's long form television. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's he's on to something that either if there's something that he wants to express and he feels that it's different at it in its philosophical assumptions than what other people have assumed, then it is appropriate to put it into a new form. So that at least the impulse is a correct one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm relatively strident, but I'm not trying to say that one of the greatest ever novelists was incorrect. I just you just like to spice things up. Well, it's kind of my role here, and that, but then also <laughs> like I, he did take to print to defend his novel. He did. I thought that was interesting too. And Ian, just not to pile on, but I do. I hear the tone that you're talking about, the elitist tone, a little bit. Yeah. In the very first statement. On the one hand, we're Center for Lit People. We want the author to be able to tell us, this is what I mean and not this other thing. We believe in that wholeheartedly. But also, he comes here at the end of his, you know, 2,000-page novel to say, now don't criticize how I have said the thing I'm trying to say. Don't read this with an eye of criticism. You need to trust the author entirely to have done a perfect thing. That's overstating, but I did get a little bit of that tone as well. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's it's... He elucidates by saying, here are the kinds of criticisms I'm receiving, right? right? This sounds too much like a real person and he didn't do that. Why do you, how dare you represent a real guy? And yeah. this isn't how it actually went in this period of history. How dare you misrepresent history? And maybe the reason he starts with a question of genre for the work is to say, I wasn't trying to do history mm-hmm. event for event and I wasn't trying to do descriptions of real persons. I was doing some third thing. I thought that was actually really helpful when actually. he distinguishes between the role of a historian and the role of an artist. And he doesn't actually say that the role of a historian is bunk. No, he, he, he says you have to be guided it. by it. Right. He, I'm not writing a work of history. In a work of history, you have to 
Um, let's see. I think he distinguishes between the ends of an event and the facts. And he says the historian has to work with the ends. He's telling, mm. he's trying to tell a narrative history, whereas the artist is able to kind of focus in on the individual and his relationship to all the other things. Whereas right. a work of history that did that, first of all, would be much, much longer than War and Peace and would be complete madness. And no, it would be useful to no one. Couldn't be. Couldn't be longer. <laughs> Just kidding. Just I actually kidding. thought that whole section was really helpful. He gives a couple different articulations of the comparison or the contrast between a historian and an artist. And the middle one is helpful. He says the historian is sometimes obliged by bending the truth to bring all the actions of a historical figure under the one idea he has put into that figure. The artist, on the contrary, sees the very singularity of that idea as incompatible with his task and only tries to understand and show not the famous figure, but the human being. I thought that was such a beautiful, if he needed another one, another beautiful interpretation of his project here as an artist, not to give you a historical treatise, which is funny, but also to give you a human being, to give you a snapshot of real life, which is that multiplicity of diverse causes that we've been talking about for pages and pages. Yep. Yeah. And I think one of the things that he says a, a little bit further down on the same page was helpful in, in my own thinking, which is um, historians are trying to, to describe the, the results, to describe the causes that match the results. We can, we're living with the results of these historical moments. And so we're constantly trying to interpolate backwards into their, their causes. And, and that an artist isn't concerned with that, but instead with describing the human state. And, and it occurred to me that um, artists are doing something counter-human as well when they go to describe what a, what a human being really is because they are likewise human beings and they have the same drive to interpolate back to causes as everybody else does. They're doing a mighty thing in resisting that in order to give an unbiased, even-handed view of humanity. This made me think of personality tests, you guys. If you ever thought about a personality test as a boxing up of a human being, a labeling oh, yeah. and a compartmentalizing of a person to make them fit into an overarching idea. There are five kinds of people. An overarching idea about personalities in general that can be universally applied like a blanket statement over humanity. These are really yeah. helpful tools. And yet there's something in a human being who, when labeled by a personality test, rises up and says, I don't fit no, in that uh. box. There's more <laughs> of me than that, right? There's, I'm, yeah. I am diverse. I am many. You know, don't try to fit me in there. I'm a bug. I am legion. Right? <laughs> uh, too far. Um, <laughs> but I heard a little bit of that coming through in that passage right there. The historian is trying to fit everybody in mm -hmm. to the box. We're trying to fit the idea into a figure who can represent that idea that the historian is going for. And the artist is more like an impressionist. I don't know, a little bit of orange, maybe some green, you know? Yeah. I... In another context, we've been reading Everything Sad is Untrue together. And a discussion we recently had in that context, I thought was really helpful for thinking about this. Um, we talked about the impulse of human beings to create a narrative out of like seeming chaos to have an identity for yourself. Because otherwise, who are you? You don't know. You have to you have to create a narrative and the the act of uh, frantically doing so um, is 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 human, but it is also uh, an insecurity because 
it's uh, us trying to figure out who we are instead of, like Tolstoy has said through his character sections, simply resting in what is mm. and uh, receiving life as a moment by moment gift that doesn't need explanation or at least by us, right? That trust that someone else is in control of that narrative and we don't have to be the ones who create the narrative. I like that. I think his, well, it's number six in his list of things that he wanted to say. Finally, the sixth and for me, the most important consideration concerns the small significance, which to my mind, so-called great men have in historical events. Methinks the man doth protest too much. And this gets into one of our, one of our Q and a questions. So I don't want to say too much now, but I wonder if his project undermines that statement a little bit, because what is he doing as an artist? If not trying to stick his whole, his oar into the intellectual waters of his era and clarify, right? He's trying to change people's minds and change people's hearts and change their perception of their history. And in so doing has become, in our estimation, a great man who did have an impact, who did produce something that has shaped society in the West ever since. So on the one hand, I think his his ideas are good. And I want to talk about that later when we get to that question. But But right here, it's at once the clearest expression of his beef with the way that the great man theory of history is written, and also maybe the clearest juxtaposition of his theory of art and his theory of history and how they maybe are at, at odds with each other a little bit. What do you guys think about that? I can see what you mean. You can sure. also just say, yeah, that's brilliant and move on. <laughs> that, that's fine. Well, I do no, think I, it's brilliant. Yeah. I do. I think, I don't know. It still rankles a little bit that he's unwilling to let any man have be a good, great man. You know, it, it rankles a little that he's not willing to say that any man's action was important. What did you make of his final discussion, which is that it's um, there actually is freedom that we experience on Earth, and it's in our abstractions. It's when we're not in relationship with other people. But once you put a human being in relationship with other people, immediately their actions are, are qualified and determined. Well, that was fascinating. I thought that conclusion was interesting because the one necessitates the other. When you're going to try and be great, you're trying to influence the course of history with other people. You're connected mm -hmm. or you're at least implying an important connection with the people around you. And in the character story that we get, the personal relational saga that he gives us, he lands very firmly on the side of needing one another. The importance of basically your will diminishing as you relate to those around you and submitting your need to be important to belong to the community around you. So I see those two things playing together. I want them both to be true. You know, I want actions to be significant in the grand scheme of things, but also I grant that it's more important to belong with your people than it is to be a great man in history. Yeah. Don't you think, though, that his philosophy does acknowledge the importance of actions? It's just qualified by the fact that, one, you don't get to decide why those actions are important. And B, it makes it so that it's not just particular men who are important, but it's every single person whose actions are important. You're right. That but is then the I hear syndrome from The Incredibles in my head. When everyone's, special, everyone's special, no one will be. No one will be. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. I know. But isn't that the, that's just 
that's just fallen human nature, right? Wanting to be more important than other people. Can we do roasts? Because I just <laughs> got five roasts from Shad via text message. Wait, really? So yeah. he's not going to come live, but he is going to no. roast us via he's, text. He's dealing with an emergency on another project, but he did send me some roasts. Does that well, mean Shad's him. being mean to us from a distance? They are So this is, again, to qualify. These are from our audio editor who we invited to join us today, and but has not joined us. And us. All right. <laughs> okay, so... Roast number one from, from our favorite editor in the world. The last 20 or so episodes were on average 20 minutes shorter than the episodes before them. I guess you must have run out of unique ways to say Tolstoy is didactic and we really like Pierre. <laughs> He's so right. <laughs> okay. Uh, Amanda, okay, you're no. right. Amanda <laughs> says yes, we went too slow. So we went too so slow. Much too slow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. We're going to speed it up next time. Oh, okay. And feel free to add your own roasts, all you people (laughs) that are here with us live. Number two, if I ever have to hear the phrase philosophy of history again, I'm going to jump into the Grand Canyon. (laughs) (laughs) If I have to just say it again, I'm going to follow you. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Number three, I'm pretty sure the whole team likes Pierre more than they like each other. (laughs) And that goes double for Ian and Emily. (laughs) Oh, man. Chad, you try doing a podcast with your wife. <laughs> yeah, seriously, try podcasting with your wife. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. Four, every time Maria came up and Ian started roasting her, I prayed Megan and Emily would scream, stop, stop, she's already dead. <laughs> and then to wrap it up, he says, Paul Dano. That's it. That, that's it. I think that's, that's the roast. Yeah. Paul Dano. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> oh, Shad, thank you for sending those brilliant. and for listening to us for this last 18 Shad months. Shad has done an amazing job of Yeoman's listening work. to every single word that we've Goodness said for gracious. two years without ever getting to contribute. <laughs> He's the real hero. He is. He's, He's the real the great MVP. man of War and Peace. Shad is the great man. Suck it, Tolstoy. Man, <laughs> Tolstoy doesn't think you exist, Shad. <laughs> Oh, so Emily, what are some of the Q&A, Q&A questions? I'm going to lay officially in this moment. Yeah. I'm going to lay Tolstoy's work to rest. Boom. It is, it is rested. Well, that's not entirely true because we are going to retrospect a little bit. Here no, no, no. I just mean we're not going to, we're not going to read quotations <laughs> oh, from see. the appendix anymore. You're say, we're no, no, no. We're done. No, no. No, no, no. We're done. <laughs> no, no, no. It's over. No, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> no. So some of you sent in some, some questions for us to tackle and I think they're really fun. Emily, would you please ad- administrate that Absolutely. portion of the show? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, first one. As you all have read more about Tolstoy, is there a character in War and Peace that he said he identifies with or that you think he wrote after himself somewhat? Oh, that's such a great question. So my understanding is, sorry, if you, I'm just like, I read the question and now I'm about to answer it. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought you were going to no, do you guys want to take know, it? pass that out to us or kind of no, MC. Please. Okay. I just realized what I was doing, so <laughs> please jump in. <laughs> Go ahead, Emily. You should start. Well, my understanding is, according to scholars, that it's generally considered that he, Tolstoy, saw himself most in Pierre. Do we just want that to be true? No, I don't think so. I think that there's something to it. I think the 
the draw towards family life. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, but Tolstoy had about a million children. And so I think he is the man who is torn between the beauty of family life, which eventually fell apart on him because he kept getting involved in political and like national and and philosophical affairs to such an extent. He like gathered a following as though he were a prophet. Mm. And this became such a huge part of his life that his personal life, which was very dear to him, I think, fell apart. That's so sad. Tragic. I didn't know that. So my guess is that they're right, that, that he's Pierre. Hmm. But, I mean, that doesn't have to be singular, you know? Yeah, I mean, my first thought when I read that question was, he's either Pierre or he's Andre. The kind of, of calculating cold examination and analytical mindset. Um, on the one hand, Tolstoy is really warm towards his characters, and, and he, but he's, he's above all a keen, keen observer of the things going on around him. But the other thought that I had is, if if Pierre's kind of bumbling personality, his his uh, what's the word I'm really looking for? Wishy washy. He's wishy washy, mm-hmm. right? If that aspect of his personality is true, then an Andre type would be really intimidating to Tolstoy, and would he would look up to him and maybe fear him a little bit because of of his certainty in in comparison to Tolstoy's own uncertainty about stuff. And so I wonder if Andre is someone that he knew either a friend or a frenemy that he knew. A frenemy. <laughs> I wonder if he wishes that he were a Rostov. I yeah. was going to say, I think he wishes he were Karatiev or whoever you say that guy's name. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. He seems Playton. to be the, the perfect articulation or fleshing out of Tolstoy's perspective, the perspective he wants to have on all of history, on his fellow human beings. He's accepting and warm and jovial, but not particularly attached to any one thing. He's welcoming of a multiplicity of diverse peoples. He's, mm. he's who Tolstoy wishes he was. He's who I wish he was. Uh, I was. I mean. Yeah. Yes, of course you can, yes. David. Please do. Oh, my do. goodness. Of course, David. We were hoping there would be some contributions in the old chat box. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, that's a great Ooh, question. Fun. You want to read it out loud? What is Tolstoy saying the perfect leader looks like? Kutuzov? And is it just his restraint, Kutuzov's restraint? What is everything about him that makes him a great leader? So that's two parts. What's mm-hmm. the ideal leader that appears in the novel, according to Tolstoy? And what are the, what are the things that make him a great leader? I, I think David is perfectly answer to the first part of the question. I think it is Kutuzov Mm -hmm. who is pitted kind of clearly against Napoleon man on man in in the historical parts of the novel. What do you think, Megan? I would say yes, with an important second step, which is that Kutuzov doesn't end the novel as a perfect leader. He actually Mm -hmm. diminishes and goes into the background as an average old man. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to Tolstoy's articulation of of the philosophy. But I think of all of the leaders that he shows us in the novel, Kutuzov is the one that he holds up as an example and says, mostly because he's willing to be a figurehead and follow where the people lead. That makes him a great leader. Mm -hmm. Yep. It might even that, the part about him diminishing and going into the West (laughs) and remaining Galadriel (laughs) might actually be a part of what makes him a great leader. 
Yeah. And not George Washington style. Like I, I lay down my power. Going to sit under his vine right, fig tree. Because the, the, that's still like a, a willful act, heroic act. But Kutuzov's weakness, right? It's He becomes old and... He's kind of set aside by the emperor, actually. He's set aside in the end. We know that he reads kind of smutty French romance novels. He's got a weakness for girls, right? Like, I just think that, but it's the weaknesses that show us that he is being used as a leader. It is not, he is not exerting leadership more than what you said, Megan, the, um, the ability to kind of sit back and watch other people kind of do their thing and like just I don't know affirm what's going on yeah I love the way David puts it in the chat box he says it's the power of a man being nothing yep I think that is a great way of putting it it seems like an oxymoron but it's a very strong thing to curb your own will and allow humbly for actions to take their course which is I mean I think there's some truth to that and it's also rings is fairly eastern and and tolstoy is eastern and orthodox right so fun question give us another one <laughs> okay so next one from my list that i have is which character do you all identify most with Ooh, fun and i'd love to see people chiming in about that one too here that are here live who wants to go first me go do it papa rostov yeah I see that. Why? Interesting. Because I am also a, a genial, hey fellow, hail fellow, well met. Who, who, if it were not for my wife's financial acumen, would be broke. Destitute. <laughs> Interesting. Mm-hmm. But I also think what I see in Papa Rostov is a correct identification of what's important in life, which is people and relationships. If a kind of a ham-fisted understanding of how to serve them well, I aspire to be a, a better man than he in that area. But I, I understand his priorities, and I understand the foibles that come along with them. I really I get that dude. So, Papa Rostov is a Enneagram 7. Absolutely. <laughs> Papa Rostov's a 7 tests. all the way down. <laughs> to let you all in a little bit more, we recently took the personality test <laughs> as the Andrews family recently, and we're still a little shook. <laughs> <laughs> Shooketh. <laughs> Megan, what about you? Well, I don't know. I identify with a couple characters. I identify with Natasha, but maybe not in her awesome qualities. I think I identify with how she's very extreme. When she's happy, she's very, very happy. And when she's sad, she's weeping. I get that. (laughs) Definitely the way that I deal with the pressures of my life as well. But that could just be that she's a young girl and I'm a young girl. You know, I'm open to that. Personality wise, and maybe in in a realer sense, I get, I get Pierre. I think his famous quote about longing to live rightly, but kind of being at the mercy of other strong personalities and always thinking, well, it has to be so, but wanting really badly to be right, to be justified in the end, though Mm. he hasn't been very strong through his whole life. I really, I get that. And I think he's a really relatable character. And I identified Mm -hmm. with him the most as I was reading when he says wonderingly, Mm. I wanted to live rightly, but I don't think I've lived as I ought. And he's so like, he's confounded by the way that his life has happened to him at that moment in the novel. I thought, yeah, 
that sounds like that sounds like young adulthood to me. I really identify with him. I had a friend in college, dear dear friend, who used to say, "I wanted to be good, yeah, but I was too bad." <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's what it is to be growing up, you know. Yeah. Anyway, awesome. maybe that's revelatory of myself, but there you go. <laughs> Emily, uh, how about you? I wish that I identified more with Pierre, but upon reflection, I think that actually I identify more with Andre, which is maybe why we're friends. Nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I am like not the good qualities either in the basic in the um and not that I like affirm this assumption but in the like gut level assumption that what's really required is that I just gird my loins and like go out and become my own hero and that really it's the weight of the world is on my shoulders and and even in the like okay so I need to grow therefore I'm going to like I'm I'm going to abstract reality and, and enjoy this precious abstraction. Love is God. And just <laughs> admire that and go off into my corner. And isn't it interesting that my son wants to talk to me? I guess I'll go do that. <laughs> I do identify with kind of those like distant, removed, abstract qualities, which is not good. And I in my that. really bad moments, I'm like Sonia. I knew you were well, going to say that. Fine. You are not. <laughs> I'll just do it myself and I'll just sacrifice myself. No big deal. <laughs> I don't see you as the quiet suffering type, Emily. <laughs> the quiet martyr I. in the corner. That's a no. <laughs> fair. That's fair. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh. Okay. We have another question in the chat box. It's such a big book. Uh, is there a grand theme each of you see to tie the whole thing together? Oh, that's a great question. And that's on our list to talk about anyway. So why don't we just tackle that now? Yeah, it's similar to the question that says, well, how, would you, how would you sum it up? What's it about? Asking such an open-ended question to a room full of Andrews is just begging someone to run at the mouth. It's really dangerous. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to, to concisely answer your question, David. I think well, yeah, let's, if I gave someone, if someone had never read this book before and I was trying to explain why they should read it and mm -hmm. like try to explain the two halves of the book and the way that they fit together, I think I'd have to say something like this book is trying to show us about the connectedness of man's experience, both in a mm -hmm. personal level, like how man relates to his fellow human beings in the moment and his relation to the past and the future. The idea of history being an interwoven series of connections that if you zero in, you get really personal. You get even like the family unit personal. But if you mm -hmm. step back, it's that same connection, but it's like vast, vast connections. And that's all the history is. The book is a contemplation of that idea. I think that's really well said. I don't yeah, know I agree that with I that. have much to add to that. I, I will. Yeah, I'll agree with that, too. And I'll say the other, I think, equally valid, if a little stony answer is that it is half about young people growing up and and achieving a sense of themselves and their identities and half about Tolstoy beefing with his academic buddies <laughs> and that tagging those two things together doesn't ultimately work all that well but i wonder if that's maybe that was what i was trying to say that the the quest for one's identity 
is intimately connected to history. I think that is true. And wait a second, Ian, and to one's academic buddies, because that is the the relational milieu that he's having all these ideas in. Of course, you mm-hmm. want to relate those ideas to your fellow philosophers and oh, of you course. Know, go fisticuffs with them. It's part of figuring yeah. out what you think. Yeah, what I think actually is that the, reading this appendix, reading his commentary on his own his own project was really helpful for me in seeing the whole because that that dichotomy bothered me all along as you all already know and I won't <laughs> burden you with it again but that bothered me all along and then I realized hang on a second he intends both of these things to say the same thing yeah. he's he is actually trying to have the same conversation in both places and and that helps me understand understand his goal because I the way that I would phrase what you said Megan is that he is looking for a through line like all humanity is He's saying, first of all, humanity is looking for a through line. We are trying to understand how how all these things are connected. We know instinctively that they are. And the only thing I can come up with is that it's providence. That that is the the through line. And I'm in favor of a book that says that. And if it's true that there's a providence that guides events, then in interrelationships here on earth there's no point in beefing with one another right on a man-on-man level love compassion charity yeah exactly yeah yeah those are the only logical way to live in light of a providential hand guiding your your life and the lives of those around you partially because you don't know what that god is going to do if you admit that his will may include suffering which is something tolstoy unflinchingly looks at right if you admit that the will of God can include things that we look at as objectively bad, and I think Tolstoy would argue that it must, your, your vision of providence has to include that idea, logically, um, then the appropriate way to interact with one another is with charity. Because everyone is experiencing a life like that? Exactly. Everybody's experiencing a life that includes suffering. Hmm. That's my two cents. I like it too. All right. Let's see. Next up. What was your favorite moment of war and peace? Great question. I have one. I have to find Go. the page number. Though. Thank you, David. Great it, question. Oh, you're gonna. Oh, you're gonna look it up. Well, no. Well, I'm. Yes. Yep. I am. May, Ian said we're not allowed to open the book anymore. Yeah, that's right. <gasps> Are you kidding me? That's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> this is literally my last chance to do this. I was just. <laughs> oh, are you so sad? You're not gonna be doing more Tolstoy. I'm really, really sad. All right. <laughs> I'm really, really sad. <laughs> okay, so. My favorite scene is probably predictable. Um, It's the scene where Pierre realizes himself that he's in love with Natasha in that moment where she's so very needy for grace and she sees herself as the lowest of the low and she's been rejected by Andre and she she has destroyed her life with her own two hands. And he says all kinds of really wonderful, sweet things to her and it's just basically wonderful in every way. And he says... If I were not I, but the handsomest, brightest, and best man in the world, and I was free, I would go on my knees this minute and ask for your hand and your love. And she's overwhelmed, and she kind of runs out of the room. And then he goes out into the night, and there's that beautiful moment where he's standing under the cold, starry sky. And Tolstoy says that um, the stars press close to the earth, and it's almost like the heavens come down and touch Pierre Mm -hmm. in that moment. And he is, the last line says, it seemed to Pierre that this star answered fully to what was in his softened and encouraged soul, now blossoming into new life. Even now, at the very end of the novel, I think this is a little climax of sorts 
for mm-hmm. Pierre. I think that it's it's a rebirth image where that heavenly divine figure that's been orchestrating all the events of the novel comes close and there's a relational connection with a creature that changes his life forever. And I want to believe that that's the most important thing that Tolstoy is saying in the novel. He's saying a lot of things, but that's my favorite one. I couldn't agree more. That's, that's beautiful. That's great. Emily, what about you? Oh, I can't find it, but I think my favorite scene is when Andre is at death's door on the battlefield right after Uh Borodino and is lying next to Anatole and it leads him to contemplate his relationship with Natasha. And he says a lot of beautiful things in that scene, which essentially come down to it's not, I don't love her for what she does. I love her for who she is. And then just love wells up in his heart for, for his enemy. He's, and maybe it's because like I said, I do kind of identify with Andre. I thought it was really beautiful that he's able to lay down his stony, cold ideals and be completely unselfconscious in that moment and, and see the suffering of his worst enemy and have that suffering call out to him and, and call out compassion from him. Mm. Here, here. What a great scene. Well, with those off the table, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to choose. How about I you think... choose a Maria scene? <laughs> Get Sorry. out of here. <laughs> um, Running out I, of time. <laughs> what I'll do is I'll, what I'll do is choose I'll, I'll choose three and do quick hitters because none of them are as deep as the ones you guys chose. I loved the final moments with our characters, where mm-hmm. he talks where it's the marriages, gorgeous, both of them healthy, both completely different in tone and. I love that. I think he's a keen observer of relationships between men and women, and it, it was illuminating and encouraging to read. So I loved that. I also loved early, early on in the novel, the description of the troops in our first kind of battle encounter over that bridge. And it was, I mean, gruesome and difficult, but the prose was astonishing. You're right. And I thought, I'll never wow, this guy, this guy has, has such a pen. So I don't think I'll ever forget reading that. And then um, for a very cheesy reason, the night that they spend uh, dressed as musics. Oh, the mummers? That fly- yeah, yeah, the mummers, where they're flying across the snow, and it is as as Russia is in your mind, <laughs> time of the czars, right? I mean, there's, it, there's warm drinks and long nights, and everyone's outside, even though it's winter, because furs and because sleighs and, 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 and samovars I mean, and, you know, and other words samovars that are fun. And, yeah. you know, all the fun atmosphere. It was, it was so Russian, and I just, I love it. I want to go to there and have a party like that. What about callback, Pierre dancing with a bear? <gasps> Hilarious. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was also great. That was great. That was pretty good. Okay. So next question, all of our frustrations aside, what do you actually think about Tolstoy's philosophy of history? Uh (laughs) Crickets. I, I, I'm not going no first. One's willing to. I will go last. What do I yeah. actually think? As in, do I agree with him? Is that the question? I think so. Yeah. Well, yes, I guess I do. The way that he's argued it, he leaves room for a providential hand guiding the events of history. He acknowledges that there are many perspectives on each issue which is the problem with all history books ever, that they're coming 
from a perspective. They're being interpreted by an individual with an agenda. That's true of every history book I've ever read. So he's pointing out something that that I understand. Um, the only thing I would quibble with in his interpretation of history is that he seems to be nihilistic about the study of history altogether until I read his um, this last little section, the appendix. Yeah. And I think without the appendix, I would have gone away thinking that Tolstoy didn't think history was worthwhile. And I don't agree with that. I think that the study of history is important. But his articulations about what history is for and the common pitfalls, I agree. I just think it's still worthy. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. And I think an additional quibble of mine is that in the appendix, he talks about how history has to, let's see if I can find the exact quote here. There's so many pages even at the end of the book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Why did millions of men set about killing each other if it has been known ever since the world began that it is both physically and morally bad? Because it was so inevitably necessary that in fulfilling it, men were fulfilling that elementary zoological law, which the bees fulfill by exterminating each other in the fall, and according to which male animals exterminate each other. And I am a little bothered by... And I think I, I think the reason he's taking this kind of scientific, like almost evolutionary tone is because he's talking to the men of his time. And I think that he's given us reason to believe in other places that he actually thinks that human beings are, you know, image bearers and uh, participate in divine love and all of that stuff. But sometimes it almost sounds like he is I guess nihilistic, like we've always been saying, that there is that there is almost no value to human participation. And I think that in all of our discussions, I think we've come away and agreed that that's not what he actually means. But sometimes the language that he uses to do that is unhelpful and a little unclear. It does yeah. feel like but if that that's might not be what you mean, a product of his time. It, you know, he said right. it so many times. Oh, sorry, and it might be a product of who of his own the climate. The, the cultural climate he was speaking to, he might have been trying to speak to them in their own language. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I suppose I would have to say I also agree with similar reservations to, to the ones you guys have expressed. But he did spend 700 pages arguing it, though. That's, that's my frustration, which is, I admit, a stylistic, not an intellectual uh, quibble. Intellectually, I think his observation is true, uh, helpful and is in service to the artistic point that he's making upon reflection, which is that the the way to treat your brother human being is to treat them with charity because you don't know the forces working on them and that you can't understand them. I can't wait to see what beef you end up developing with Hugo in the next, in the coming year. Somewhat, somewhat less potentially. <laughs> we shall see. Okay. Uh, for last pair of questions um, have to do with kind of zooming out a little bit, talking about Russian culture. So what do you find about Russian culture and literature that makes it compelling or unique? No, I can answer that one. I got one. Okay. I got one. Uh, what makes it compelling and unique is that it is, it is a vast, vast country with a vast, <laughs> vast variety of different little mini cultures in it. But apparently all of the writers did so from a hovel in the Siberian wilderness in wintertime <laughs> because the depth of the darkness in a Russian novel 
is what makes the light so bright. They're very acquainted with suffering yeah. as a country, for sure. And I think that I think that's true not just of Tolstoy, but of Dostoevsky. Um, all the all of the Russians that I have read express darkness in an unflinching way, and somehow do it uh, without denying the presence of goodness. Which is pretty astonishing. Well, in fact, it's what's so gripping about it. The, the human beings that they portray in these horrifying situations of suffering are emotional and passionate and they tell the truth and they're introspective and they're viciously real with themselves in a way that mm-hmm. is infinitely relatable. It like draws you in and you feel like you're experiencing it with them, which sometimes is good. And sometimes, like Emily has said famously, when she's reading Crime and Punishment, she feels like maybe she's sick at heart and there's something <laughs> wrong in her, you know, like that's I like to keep sharp things away from well, her when, she's <laughs> when you're reading war and peace, maybe we should make that a habit for everyone. You know, it's so relatable that you realize there might be a murderer in you too, you know, mm-hmm. which is the mm-hmm. point, which is interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. Emily. Yeah. I think that's really good. I like same, same idea from a different perspective is that geographically, Russia is really interestingly situated. It kind of spans the globe in some ways. On one side, it touches Asian countries. And on the other side, it touches European countries. Um, and, and to the south, you know, the the middle eastern countries. So there is a way that Russia is able to participate in Western literature that is extra compelling because they can speak the language of Western literature. Right. But their perspective will always be a little outside, which is really helpful, I think. And I think it has to do, yeah, you guys are absolutely right, it has to do with even their particular history and the suffering that that instills their artists with um, and makes them honest and deep. But um, they can talk to us kind of from around the corner in a way that is uh, that opens our eyes to things that we, uh, as an echo chamber, wouldn't necessarily come to ourselves. Yeah, I like that. The, this popped into my head as you were talking, Emily. It also seems to me that, at least according to Tolstoy, but my recollection is, for Dostoevsky as well, that that the way they think about their own country has less to do with a system of ideals than it does with the kind of people that live there, like with a strong individual identity. This is, this is the Russian spirit, which is interesting to me as an American, because here in America, it's, this is the ideal of freedom. It's very ideologically oriented, but it doesn't seem to be that way for, for Tolstoy. In fact, ideologically oriented cultures are poo-pooed a bit in his in his yeah, novels. France certainly was in the time yeah. of Napoleon. So I think that's interesting to note as well that um, maybe there's a reason Russian novelists are so good at profiling and characterizing human beings is because that's actually a strength of their of their culture, their personal identities. Um, well, do we have time for one more or should we start wrapping it up? We should probably wrap it up, but if the, if the next one is short, uh, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. So the question is short. Right now, Dostoevsky for me. (laughs) Anything else? (laughs) No, I don't mean right now as in here at the end of War and Peace. I mean, I've only read one Tolstoy novel and so I don't feel qualified to, to give a verdict on all of them. But at this point in my Tolstoy reading career, I would take crime and punishment over war and peace interesting well do you want to 
back that up? What 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 do you see the differences as? Um. Well, I think I think Dostoevsky has a handle on some brevity that Tolstoy could use. No, I'm joking. Um, what I, I say, I don't think that's right. What I, what I think I I really like about Dostoevsky is the fact that his aim is to chart the possibility of redemption for a depraved soul. And I think that as literary meat goes, that's a higher order expression than what we just saw out of War and Peace. Possibly because it's more specific, but Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov are both about the Christian God wooing one of his children out of some dramatic sin. And, and so the, I don't know, the features of grace are really large in a Dostoevsky novel. And I think Tolstoy is aware of it, but he doesn't seem to be as concerned with focusing on it. Hmm. Sounds I, like it. But I, what I've been told is that I need to read Anna Karenina. So that's why I say at this point in my reading career. You do. And I, I like them both. I, I think both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are necessary and wonderful. I think that Tolstoy is more approachable. I think that his writing is kind of liquid and in all encompassing and, and engrossing. Oh yeah. That it, if like, you were asking about stylists, I would choose Tolstoy in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, I'm just offering that perspective. Um, I do think that Tolstoy can be more readable and even, even like emotionally, like Megan was saying, when you read crime and punishment, it's like, you're like, you're going down to business to, to feel a little sick to your stomach in a way right. that, um, right. especially in Anna Karenina, it's just, even the even the difficult patches passages read so fluidly. I don't I don't have a lot to contribute. I think you covered the waterfront. I I've only read notes of notes from underground from Dostoevsky, so I don't consider myself a Dostoevsky expert in any way. Uh, I started Crime and Punishment and got enough chapters in that I could tell the differences that you're talking about in writing style and thinkiness, and mostly at this point. In my limited reading of that novel, I can't imagine Dostoevsky writing a Rostov character, who mm -hmm. are my favorite characters right. in all of Russia at this moment. So I would choose Tolstoy because of the the lightness and the breathability and heart in the characters yeah. that he has written. And I haven't met any of those in a Dostoevsky novel yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a uh, fair point. David says, I've heard sociology is Tolstoy and psychology is Dostoevsky. I think there's Ooh, something cool. to that. Yeah, that uh, Dostoevsky, right. I was going to start by saying Tolstoy is extremely talented at painting a character, but so is Dostoevsky. It's just a very interior character. Well, cerebral. A cerebral character in a way that Tolstoy yeah. is portraying human relationships and yeah, family. Yeah, and also they're, and they're, they're the whole being, right? Not Dostoevsky wants to write about how a person thinks mm -hmm. and how his thinking affects his going and how his going affects his soul. Right, that's what that's what Dostoevsky is yeah. trying to do. Right, Tolstoy is trying to say, here are all of the things about a person. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that's like you say, Megan, way more lighthearted. And um, yeah, I, I love and he's it. He's just I think it's able beautiful. to just touch on Tolstoy is able to just touch on things that are just so true and and just could be unpacked to way greater extent. But they're just like in passing. Like yeah. Pierre will will. Um, get flustered and do something kind of silly. And you're like, yes, that's exactly what it's like uh, <laughs> to be a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it reminds it. I think um, 
let's do the comparison to English novelists, right? So Tolstoy's Dickens. Dickens is Tolstoy. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Uh, Tolstoy loved Dickens. Tolstoy famously, I think I've said this before, carried a portrait of Charles Dickens around his house with him. And wherever he sat up to write that day, he'd have Charles looking at him. (laughs) He'd set him up on the wall and look at him. Isn't that wild? Did we say that in an earlier episode? That's familiar to me now. Yeah. Well, I think they're the, I think their focuses are the same, not just that they both love to do characters, but that that's actually kind of the heart of their project is to describe a whole person. So I love I love that. Who would we tie into Dostoevsky? Steinbeck? Hemingway? One of the American alcoholics for sure, right? I maybe Hemingway. Maybe Hemingway. Life is nothing. Nothing but pain. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, great great comment David as usual. Uh. Awesome. Well, you guys, we did it. We did War and Peace. Yay. It was a great accomplishment. If only we had a round of applause. I had a wonderful time. I'm so glad to have done it. Yes. And thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been such a blessing to have people walking along with us. We promise we'll move faster on the next hike. (laughs) It's no small feat. (laughs) We're in shape. There's, um, (laughs) I believe it was a community of about 300 people who made it all the way oh that's so well fun done. congratulations you are, all of you give yourselves a round of applause wherever it is that you're listening to this if you're driving please you know clap with one hand on your on and your to leg. those who are actually here celebrating with us today we're extra glad that you you came and great job to you guys we've all done a very difficult thing Yes. And we're so thankful you were here to do it with us and now you can use this book for its original purpose as a door stopper yeah. <laughs> or as a or as bragging rights yeah. at dinner parties, right? You are now the first person. I I I. Well, this is bearing the lead maybe a little bit, but I recently went skydiving. It was super fun, and when I got to the ground, my skydiving instructor turned to me and said, <laughs> "You are now the newest skydiver." And I thought that was a funny thing to say. That is a funny but thing to say. All the rest of you are now the newest people who can say they have read. Oh, I love that. And that's, that's, a, that's an elite eaters. brotherhood. So well done, you elephant eaters. <laughs> we hope that you'll join us on the next book. We also 100% understand if you need a break. Well, we're going to take a break. Not a very long one. Not like, not like we'll see you in months. Right. But in weeks. We're going we're gonna to let War and Peace settle in, digest a little bit. We're going to go we're gonna where we take it. Victor Hugo. Mm-hmm. So until then, my friends... Go read some fluff. And we will we will see you next time around on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.